Welcome to WPKN's Resistance Roundtable, coming to you the second Saturday of each month from 10 to 11 a.m. In this hour, we'll talk about the impeachment of Trump and the implications of his uh, what appears to be inevitable acquittal for the future of our democracy. Our regular panel is here and there. Ruth Ann Baumgartner is on the phone, Scott Harrison and myself in the studio. Ruth Ann teaches English at Central Connecticut State University and is active in the American Association of University Professors. She also directs plays for the Westport Community Theater, whose lights are still darkened by the pandemic, but may hopefully flicker on before long. Scott Harris is the host of Counterpoint, a public affairs show that airs every Monday right here at WBKN at 8 p.m. He is also the executive producer of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, a nationally syndicated show that also airs here on this station. I host First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio, the Organic Farm Stand, and I'm on the roster of hosts for the Public Issues Show which is called Mike Check, and it airs every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. I'm only on once a month. It's actually tomorrow that I will be on. This week we'll be joined by two guests, Dr. Gerald Horn, professor of African-American history at the University of Houston. He's a prolific author and political analyst who will deconstruct the recent carnage at the nation's capital and offer his perspective on the struggles to come. And next, we'll hear from Tyler Wakefield. He's the lead for the New Haven hub of the Sunrise Movement, and he will um, comment on the Biden-Harris environmental proposals that have been rolling out over the past few weeks. And also, he will uh, reflect on the local actions needed to promote environmental justice right here in Connecticut. So, with only a couple of minutes to spare, let's check in with our panelists. Ruth Ann and Scott are standing by. Ruth Ann, where is your head at at this bizarro moment in our public life? Well, I've been pretty much immersed in the uh, hearings, and I have an overarching opinion uh, that I that I have at the top of my head, and I would like to unload it on our on our um, I'm not on our wonderful audience. So. It's called Performed Indifference. Today's New York Times editorial described the Republican senators at the impeachment hearings as so committed to telegraphing their disdain for the process that they couldn't be bothered to watch the House manager's presentation. They doodled or played on their phones or simply averted their eyes as the horror unfolded. What do they think they're doing, asked a friend. It's so rude. I knew. I first saw that behavior back in the seventh grade when several boys persisted in yawning, laughing, and cutting up during a review before a math test. And I've also seen it from the front of a classroom, most memorably when I was assigned at the last minute to teach an intro to theater course of some hundred students. Toward the back of that lecture hall, a group of bulky young men sat with their feet up, openly playing computer games, passing notes, yawning. I couldn't seem to get their attention. That's the football team, someone explained. They signed up thinking it would be an easy A. 
I'm sure others who teach also recognize this phenomenon. This is performed indifference, and it's meant to be just as noticeable and offensive as it seems. Back in seventh grade, a friend explained about that math test, I could pass if I tried, but why bother? And that was what this behavior was communicating. Look, I'm not even trying, so don't blame me if I fail. It's your fault for boring me. So when I saw Republican senators sitting with their feet up, catching up on their email, playing games on their phones, I didn't wonder why. I've seen performed boredom before, performed indifference. They're saying, I suppose I could vote to impeach if I felt like it, but I don't feel like it. I'm not even listening. Don't blame me. You're the boring one. You're the joke. Or as Michelle Goldberg put it in today's New York Times, because of the unlikelihood of Trump being convicted, it often seems as if this second impeachment trial is being conducted for the public and for history. Republican senators are being given the opportunity to get on the right side of that history, to distance themselves from a disgrace that they must know their descendants will someday read about. They will almost certainly not take it. And it made me deeply angry because these are evidently kids who couldn't bother to grow up, who excuse failure by not trying, and who will harm not only themselves but also their country when they vote to excuse sedition and incitement to riot by an autocrat whose thirst for power and adoration is matched only by his own willingness to put his feet up, watch TV, tweet, perform indifference, and claim rewards he isn't willing to bother to earn, expressed in three-syllable chants and escalating violence. This is not merely juvenile. It is criminal. Whoa. Thank you, Ruth. (laughs) That's a wake-up. I like that one. Better than than caffeine. (laughs) Well said. Well said. Uh, Scott, what's on your uh, mind today? Thank you for that, Ruth. That was great. And uh, I was thinking about some things having to do with mass murder. As the nation is focused on the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, there's new evidence that the disgraced former president consciously and deliberately refused to send in National Guard troops to protect members of Congress during the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol that killed five people. A phone call between House Minority Republican uh, Kevin, the Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Trump that day has uh, been reported on by news outlets and been described by Republicans as verification that Trump was on the side of the domestic terrorists who stormed the Capitol that day by refusing to respond to pleas by Republicans as well as Democratic legislators to intervene during the attack on the Capitol. This is yet another smoking gun in this impeachment uh, process. Uh, And I I wanted to talk about the deliberate nature of Trump's actions that day on January 6th and compare it to uh, a similar issue that arose uh, during his presidency, as many people may be uh, uh, remembering. In in October, a Columbia University study found that uh, President Trump could have avoided an estimated 130,000 COVID-19 deaths had his administration acted sooner and not deliberately sabotaged the federal coronavirus response for what Trump believed was uh, in his political self-interest in the November election. And I think it's obvious that the mass murder of many Americans here deliberately, and I would say that... uh, you know, with, with the confirmation of this Columbia University study, that that should certainly have been one of the impeachment articles. Uh, it's certainly uh, equally, if not 
more egregious than what he did on, on January 6th. And uh, I guess we lived, if we lived in a perfect world, Trump would be up on a number of charges. But I think his response to the coronavirus that killed so many Americans during this past uh, almost a year now uh, rises to one of the worst historical actions of any president in our history. Mm. Wow. <laughs> We're off to a roaring start here. Well, I'm going to change the pace a little bit with some medical news. I was watching late-night TV, as I often do. I think it was about 2 in the morning, and CNN had one of their third-string announcers on, and he was interviewing a medical guy. I don't know if he was from the CDC or the FDA or from some uh, university research lab, but he was talking about a home testing kit for COVID. It, It was cheap. It was fast and it could be easily manufactured. Here's how it would work. You would have these kits at home. You would test yourself three times a week. You get the results within a half hour, so there wouldn't be any time in there where you could be in the dark about your status. And if your test was positive, then you would stay home, and you would know not to go out and mingle with other people. If your test was negative... Then you could go about your business, and a couple of days later, you would test yourself again to make sure that your public behavior had not brought on the disease. And so he said that this is the way for us to add to the effect of the vaccine, which is going to very slowly mitigate the COVID spread. This kind of self-monitoring and action that would help people to know how to how to behave, you know, whether to stay home or not. But the interesting thing was, he said, it needs to be done three times a week by all 330 million of us. Well, um, by my math, that's about a billion tests a week. <laughs> so my first thought was, how's that going to happen? And what popped in my mind was the Defense Production Act. And so here's the kicker is that Where is this Defense Production Act? It's been talked about now for over a year. You know, it was used back in during the Korean War. And it is basically, I would say, a kind of a socialist measure to get industry to do what is needed to be done. In other words, not just for profit. We got to get this job done. We need this so many things produced and and you got to do it. I was fascinated by this thing. And I'm wondering why it isn't happening and what the reluctance is about the Defense Production Act, why it isn't in full swing already on a number of fronts. And this home testing thing seems like a good place to start. I'll stop there. This morning, we're very honored to have with us as a guest on Resistance Roundtable, Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, his research has addressed issues of race in a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, and war. Dr. Horn's books include The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America, Paul Robeson, The Artist is Revolutionary, and Fire This Time, The Watts Uprising in the 1960s. Dr. Horn, thank you so much for making time to come on our program this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. So with the country focused on this impeachment trial, 
I, I wanted to look to the future a bit and get your take on the ongoing very serious threats to our democracy that exist. And those include a seditionist white supremacist movement in the country. And we've seen the violence over uh, recent years and recent decades, as a matter of fact, voter suppression and a political party that seems to align itself with armed violence. What are some of the things that you're looking for in the future in, in order to protect our democracy, Dr. Horn? Well, you may have noticed the article in the New York Times a few days ago on Michigan. Recall that in April 2020, you had a dress rehearsal in a sense for January 6th when Michigan militia, ultra-righteous, white supremacists invaded the Lansing, Michigan capital. There was a plot uncovered that has led to indictments for an effort to kidnap the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and fundamentally execute her. And in the context of that article, one of the analysts mentioned that what's happening now is that a political party, the Republican Party, is developing an armed wing. Now, the last time we saw that in the United States, it happened post-U.S. Civil War, post-1865, when the Democratic Party developed an armed wing, then known as the Ku Klux Klan. Today, the functional equivalents include these various statewide militias, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, the latter of which got a shout-out from the 45th U.S. president at a fall 2020 debate with the eventual winner, Joseph Biden. And I take it you paid attention to the impeachment trial that has taken place in Washington this past week. And despite the fact that it was a harried effort and despite the fact that the impeachment managers relied heavily upon press reporting as opposed to an independent investigation, which I think is going to have to be mounted sooner or later, uh, there was very disturbing uh, accounts of violence. Uh, the videotape that I assume you saw that ultimately led to five, six deaths, led to suicides of officers, it was a quite chilling uh, display. And that notwithstanding, it appears that as of today, there will be an acquittal in the Senate of Mr. Trump. And I think that may be the most chilling aspect of all. Well, Dr. Horn, I wanted to sort of take up where Scott's question left off. And please indulge me for this rather long framing of the question. But I wonder if you'd reflect on the rather extreme dichotomy which is taking shape on the American political landscape and which some are interpreting as a harbinger of a new civil war. On the one hand, uh, the Democrats can't deny that Biden-Harris were elected because of massive support from the African-American voters in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia. So will they now acknowledge that blacks and Latinos are the true base and finally reshape th their agenda to move away from the centrist neoliberal policies and, in the words of Joe Biden, have the backs of blacks, Latinos, and working people? This would constitute a sea change leading to a broad left coalition not seen in this country since perhaps the 30s and 40s. 
On the other side, we see the Republican Party downplaying the attack on the Capitol and apparently coalescing around the far-right legislatures who are still claiming Trump won the election and also embracing the Trump base, including the militia groups who participated in the sacking of the Capitol. So will they careen further to the extreme right, formulating a neo-Confederate alliance with an openly racist and fascist profile? And so I wonder what you think these two radically different political directions and tendencies, where they will lead us. Are we heading for what some have warned could be a new civil war or just where? Well, (laughs) that's quite a mouthful. I would only make a friendly amendment which is that I'm afraid to say that some of our friends on the left are downplaying the rightward lurch in the Republican Party. Some of our friends on the left, they take the argument that what they see as the neoliberalism of the Democratic Party is the prime enemy right now. And they've expressed an extraordinary, in my estimation, amount of sympathy Uh, towards the claims of the right. I mean, uh, I know you may find this hard to believe, but I find it hard to believe, too. Now, with regard to the right wing, there are some very disturbing aspects. I'm speaking to you from the state of Texas. And as of now, there is a secessionist movement that is brewing. And there are elements within the Republican Party that are favorable, I'm afraid to say, to the secessionist movement. The Republican Party, which is under the leadership of Alan West, who you may recall as a former congressman from Florida, has adopted and adapted certain QAnon verbiage with regard to the storm that the QAnon phenomenon frequently refers to. You may recall that Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia, is a sympathizer of this QAnon movement, and I won't repeat any of their loony ideas because I think they've gotten enough circulation as it is, but suffice it to say that it does not bode well, uh, to put it frankly, that QAnon has sympathizers in Congress, uh, not only uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, but Laura Boebert of Colorado, Not to mention the fact that 199 members of the Republican House caucus were reluctant to take action against Marjorie Taylor Greene, despite QAnon's obvious racist and anti-Semitic tropes that it frequently deploys. So we're at a very perilous moment right now. But I think there's another point that needs to be made. Um, You may recall that uh, during the height of the Red Scare, the late Historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., a JFK acolyte, uh, wrote this book, uh, The Vital Center, where he counseled the Republicans should ignore forces to their right, the Democrats should ignore forces to their left, and all should join hands and barrel down the highway that is the vital center. Mm-hmm. Now, the Democrats <laughs> upheld their end of the bargain. As you have suggested in your remarks, uh, they're quite sympathetic, shall we say euphemistically, to the neoliberal agenda, that is to say uh, elevating markets uh, above all, certainly property above people, whereas Republicans have not upheld their end of the bargain, as is obvious with my references to QAnon. Now, whether or not 
the present iteration of the Democratic Party in 2021 is willing to embark on a different path, I think it's too soon to say. I mean, there are some positive signs. I mean, for example, in terms of that, those, that spate of executive orders that Mr. Biden issued in his first few days, some were heartening with regard to a racial equity audit of every government department, uh, trying to curtail Pentagon sales of military materiel, up to and including bazookas that you use on the battlefield to urban police departments. Uh, there are some the, the fact that the Pentagon is engaged in a pause by which it's trying to root out white extremists within their ranks. And of course, there have been many studies suggesting that the white extremists and white supremacists have uh, and planted their claws deeply into the flesh of the U.S. military. It's, there are also some disturbing signs that may point in a certain direction. What, what I mean is that the 1% uh, had, in their estimation, a rather successful electoral campaign. Uh, that is to say that uh, you had Euro-American working class and middle class voting for the GOP who would then go to Washington and pack tax cuts for the wealthy, as in December 2017, and deregulation and other giveaways. Uh, of course, the foot soldiers did not fare as well, to put it mildly. But then you have the insurrection on January 6, 2021, uh, heavily by foot soldiers, uh, a significant a number of whom were military veterans, uh, I've read that uh, perhaps 30 percent were Marine veterans. That's in The New York Times this morning, by the way. Mm. And a number of police officers, uh, a number of working class people. But, of course, it's a multi-class formation. It's not just working class or people from the national security or police establishment. You have CEOs, small business owners, et cetera. And so it's in that context that I've used certain changes in the culture. Uh, for example, Charles Murray a social scientist, wrote a book some years ago called The Bell Curve, where he suggested, if not argued, that black Americans uh, have a genetic failure, which helps to account allegedly and purportedly for our failures. And he was part of a cabal that I'm afraid to say also includes the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which suggested that we, black people, were undergoing speciation. We were turning into a different species in terms of, of human life. And now he's written a book where he uses similar arguments against the Trump base, which is overwhelmingly uh, Euro-American. Uh, Kevin Williamson, uh, who writes for the National Review, who you may recall that journal was started by one of your fellow Netmeg State Residents, William F. Buckley Jr., mm -hmm. uh, patron saint of conservatism. Uh, Kevin Williamson's latest book is Big White Ghetto, where he repeats some of uh, Charles Murray's arguments. I mean, there's this demonizing of, of the Trump base. And you see that also reflected in, in Hollywood with the movie uh, Hillbilly Elegy, starring uh, Glenn Close, who also has Netmeg State Roots. And so it would be easy to infer from that that uh, there is growing concern amongst the elite of this country in light of January 6th, although admittedly some of these works were completed before January 6th, although the signs were ever present, and that 
there might be much more of a comfort with the Biden coalition. But the problem there, from our, from my point of view at least, is that when you have the migration into the ranks of Republicans like John Kasich, the former governor of Ohio, Republican, never Trumper, it inevitably helps to push the Democrats to the right. And I would also caution that uh, this reliance on the black community, which I understand, also has a, a kind of downside in the, in the sense that since the uh, heyday of Paul Robeson, the uh, great actor, entertainer, who was red-baited tremendously in the early 1950s, and the fact that Martin Luther King denounces the Vietnam War one year and is executed, assassinated the next year, you've had a reluctance on the part of many uh, black organizations and leaders to venture into the minefield that's U.S. foreign policy, and to that extent, that gives, I'm afraid to say, the Biden administration more leeway and latitude to perpetrate and repeat some of the foreign policy disasters of the Obama years, like Libya 2011, for example. So this is the state of play as we speak. Wow. Thank you for that. I have follow-ups. But let's move on to Ruth Ann and see if she has a question for you. Well, the, the, uh, the big word that kept... Uh headlining itself in my in my mind, uh, Professor Horn, as you were speaking, was appeasement. I, I feel as if um, I'm, I'm, my parents were Republicans, but we were Eisenhower Republicans, so it's really okay. Um, <laughs> and they raised a radical left daughter who is kind of shuffling her way toward being one of the nice far-left people, as opposed to one of the angry ones. And I think what we're hearing over and over is we have to reach out, we have to reach out, we have to reach out to these people on the extreme right and somehow uh, find some accommodation. And I think about the disastrous policy of appeasement in World War II that did nothing to stop Hitler. And I, 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 I wonder how um, we can alert ourselves to the dangers of this kind of generosity of soul that only seems to go one way. Well, that's the problem, is it not? It only seems to go one way. I don't hear about people saying, reach out to a person like myself. You know, no, I think I, they want to reach out and slap you down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Reach out and touch, but not necessarily my hand with gentleness. <laughs> and uh, you know, and I, I think I think we, we we really need to come to some hard truths, which is that the Republican Party, as noted, is a kind of united front of white Americans across class lines. And given the fact that white Americans across class lines have, uh, shall we say, substantial influence in virtually every institution are not subjected to the kinds of harassment, say, that a dark-skinned person like myself might be subjected to, this gives them certain advantages in the public square. And given the fact of the grimy origins of this country, which many do not want to make reference to, that is to say, uh, with many of the denizens, particularly indigenous and people of African descent, uh, not included necessarily in the body politic and suffering disadvantage since that time and viewed by some as not necessarily legitimate parts of the so-called republic. 
And that's, that's one of the reasons why there's no impetus, no surge to reach out to people like myself. But that particular analysis comes into conflict with this cross-class, cross-cultural analysis, which tends to look at the founding of the United States as this great leap forward for humanity and created a constitution that even though it excluded so many of us, it had the potential to include the rest of us, which then imputes to a document, a piece of paper, something that's really dependent upon the struggles of peoples themselves, which history clearly shows. And so given that scenario that I've just sketched for you, it would be very easy to be pessimistic uh, about the future of this country, uh, particularly when we concede, as I think we must, that one of the reasons why Mr. Trump will likely be acquitted is not only because of the inability of the leaders in the Senate to come to grips with reality, but also because many of them want to keep their jobs. And there is a mass base for Mr. Trump and the Republican Party, and people need to come to grips with that and need to try to understand why that is and then need to come up with some remedies to address it because that's, that's the problem, this, this, this mass base uh, that is so easily manipulated for malign purposes. Dr. Horn, I want to follow up on your comments earlier uh, with regard to my question. The side that we didn't get into too deeply was this potential left coalition, broad-based coalition, wherein the, the Democratic Party would recognize that their true base is working people, African Americans, Latinos, and people who have real struggles in their lives that need to be addressed by uh, a political party. So I'm wondering what you see the potential for Biden-Harris to really move in that direction, eschew the uh, neoliberal tendencies of the party, and to focus, as Roosevelt did, on sol actually solving the problems of that constituency or those constituencies, and thereby mounting a political force that could rival and subsume the uh, what appears to be, as I said earlier, a neo-Confederate Republican Party. Well, I'm glad you, you raised uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and uh, particularly I would raise his remarks in 1944 when he outlined a second Bill of Rights. That was in the context of an anti-fascist war, uh, which had beaten back tremendously uh, anti-socialist, anti-communist viewpoints. Uh, at one point during the Roosevelt administration, the Communist Party alone had about 80,000 members. But after the death of Roosevelt in April 1945 and the ascension to that office of Harry S. Truman of Missouri, who I'm afraid to say, unfortunately, he had taken the place of Henry A. Wallace mm -hmm. uh, as vice president. And, of course, Henry A. Wallace, in a sense, was to the left of both Roosevelt and Truman. But with Truman becoming president, that's quickly followed by the onset of the Red Scare, the Cold War, the Taft-Hartley Act, which basically denudes the labor movement of strength. 
And to a certain degree, uh, despite the collapse of the Soviet Union and the retreat of socialism worldwide, the United States is still operating in the shadow of the Taft-Hartley Act and operating in the shadow of the Red Scare. Now, having said that, uh, there are some uh, useful and positive signs uh, that I've noticed with regard to the incoming administration, the attempt to strengthen the Occupational Safety and Health Administration with regard to uh, anti-COVID regulations, the noises that have been made from the White House about a $15 an hour a minimum wage, which, as you know, it's, it's unclear whether or not that will emerge successfully because there's a opposition within the Democratic Party itself. Uh, more specifically, uh, Senator Manchin of West Virginia. Recall that uh, Mr. Trump won West Virginia, one of the poorest states, by double digits. I mean, <laughs> on the one hand, you know, we can come up with all these proposals. On the other hand, as I said, as long as the right wing has a mass base as it does, in the Euro-American working class and middle class, it's going to be difficult, even for the troika that I'm speaking to, to migrate to Washington, D.C. and assume the levers of power and push through progressive measures, because that's just the reality. I've also noticed that uh, there's talk about labor law reform, uh, which was bruited in the early months of the Obama administration, but fell victim for various reasons. And now there's talk about that again. Uh, certainly, that that would be long overdue. Uh, but uh, once again, I mean, I, I don't think I don't, I don't think we should be as uh, the philosophers should say uh, voluntarists to assume that political leaders and political parties, by their simple force of will, can overcome the correlation of forces as represented in the racial and class makeup of the Republican Party. I mean, that ultimately is the formidable issue that has to be addressed and overcome. Dr. Horn, uh, just one last question. We're, we're almost out of time, but uh, I, I think I'd be remiss in not mentioning some of the bright spots we've seen in this last uh, election cycle. We had uh, a miracle occur in Georgia due to a lot of hard work. Stacey Abrams and groups like Fair Fight, New Georgia Project, Georgia Stand Up, won that state for Joe Biden and uh, won the two Senate races in the, in the runoff there. They just wrote, uh, Stacey Abrams and Lauren Grow-Wargo, her uh, campaign manager, just wrote a, a, an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday, how to turn your red state blue, it may take 10 years, do it anyway. We'd refer people to that. But briefly, Dr. Horn, what kind of potential do you see in things like we've seen unfold in Georgia? Well, I think there's potential, but as you know, potential means you haven't done it yet. And I should also caution that already the Abrams, Warnock, Osaw forces are under investigation by the authorities uh, in Georgia. And it would be naive to think that the authorities in Georgia, the Republicans, are just going to roll over and play dead <laughs> in light of the fact that the Democrats claimed uh, two Senate seats, uh, not to mention the fact that the Republicans did not reclaim the House in Washington, although they made some gains in the House, and they continue to have a stranglehold over many state capitals, which will be essential with regard to the census data from 2020 and the redrawing of uh, 
legislative districts, congressional districts, et cetera, not to mention the fact, as the press has been reporting, uh, there's been a tidal wave of legislation from the Atlantic to the Pacific filed by Republican legislators and state capitals to restrict the right to vote, particularly uh, mail-in balloting, which, as you know, Mr. Trump made a big to-do about. So, uh, you know, being the descendant of enslaved Africans and not being enslaved African myself, I have to be optimistic, uh, at least in the short term. But at the same time, uh, being of African descent, I also have to do a kaleidoscopic analysis and not sweep under the rug these very disturbing and troublesome trends that we've been talking about for the last few minutes. Well, Dr. Horn, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate all that you've said, the analysis, and uh, look back in history as well. So we'll hope to. Thank you uh, for inviting me. Yeah, we'll hope to stay uh, stay connected and have you back sometime soon. Thank you. All right. Good luck. Take care. Bye bye. That's uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. He holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. And uh, coming up next, we'll be speaking with Tyler Wakefield, who is the lead for the New Haven hub of Sunrise Movement here in Connecticut. Uh, It's a national organization, but he'll be focusing on Connecticut actions and also giving us an overview on the Biden-Harris environmental rollout that we've seen that has been so encouraging to so many people. Well, I believe now we do have our next guest on the phone. Tyler Wakefield. He is the lead for the New Haven Hub of Sunrise Movement. So, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Richard. Um, just a quick clarification. Um, I appreciate the nod, but I am one of several leaders oh, in the okay. hub. Um, certainly not any sort of sole executive lead of the beautiful work we're doing here in New Haven, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of, lot of leaders participating. Okay, good to know that. Why don't we start with your sense of where we stand now in the, at this historical moment with uh, a new administration that has come in and I think to many people's surprise has proposed a whole range of environmental policies and changes and negations of Trump atrocities, so to speak, of environmental atrocities. What's your reaction to this rather surprising rollout from Biden and Harris, and how optimistic are you that this will move us toward a powerful solution to so many of the issues that we face with uh, climate change? Yeah, definitely. So thanks for the question. Um, I guess first I want to start by saying that we're we're playing catch-up, and um, as impressive or exciting or maybe unexpected some of the Biden executive orders and commitments have been um, in the past month or so. Um, that's it's only really viewed as impressive because we're in such a um, a lagging situation behind the scientific consensus, and we've grown accustomed to this political environment where um, climate action is really not on the table. And, and suddenly it is in a big way. Um, and while that should be inspiring and we should continue to press there, we got to realize that we're, you know, about 50 years behind where um, we should be. And we've known about the existential risk of climate change for all this time. And the U.S. 
has been kind of one of the foremost laggards on, on this issue on an international scale, kind of continuing to slow down the conversation and allow the fossil fuel industry in the U.S. to really perpetrate a pretty dangerous lie um, and pour billions of dollars into lobbying our political system to block any and all action on this issue. So um, just want to say that, you know, we're, we're really in a dire situation of playing catch up here. And it's definitely exciting to see that the, the voice of the American people, the power of social movements has lit a fire under the Biden administration um, to put serious plans in place and, and to fight hard. Um, but I don't think we're at a time where we should just relax um, and have any sort of trust that um, we're on, on pace to where we need to be. Um, but uh, on, a, on a different tone, I think I want to say that, you know, finally we're seeing that on this issue, government um, across the left and even starting to see in, in the Republican Party, people acknowledge the existence of climate change for the first time, um, starting to acknowledge that it is man-made, um, which is not something that was really happening five, ten years ago. And that's because two-thirds of American people want urgent action on climate change. Um, and as well, it, it's not just about CO2. You know, the Sunrise Movement is very clear that the only reason we're, we're really concerned about this issue um, is because it's having unjust effects on our society. If climate change was treating everyone the same and things were just getting a little warmer for everyone and you know, the whole society could adapt easily, um, so there'd be a good argument that you know, as long as we protect life on Earth and we're able to live um, as a globalized society with these environmental changes, it's all good. But the reality of climate change is that it affects different people incredibly differently. And uh, the folks who have played almost no role in creating this catastrophe are suffering around them, suffering the most, whether that's looking at a global perspective of which parts of the globe, which nations are most vulnerable to climate change and what have they done to contribute to global emissions, or looking here in the U.S., here in Connecticut, here in New Haven, about where does wealth lie in our society and how do people without wealth and who have been systematically denied from accessing wealth and stability, how are they going to face in the, the dangerous times ahead as we're, we're going to have increasing shocks from the climate and ecological crises? Um, and so we really take a, a justice-focused uh, approach and an equity-focused approach and say that, um, yes, these initiatives coming out of the Biden administration, these, these big plans are exciting, but unless we're ensuring that those resources that we're pumping into starting to address this crisis are going to those communities who have been systematically locked out of opportunity. Um, we're still failing to get that this is ultimately about building a just society. Tyler, uh, this is Scott Harris. Thanks for joining us and all your important work. Just a, a question regarding the history of uh, Democratic presidents. We've done a postmortem here of the Obama years, and activist groups pretty much went into a deep coma during the uh, Obama years, and a lot of what could have been accomplished maybe wasn't because there wasn't an, an activist movement pushing uh, uh, Mr. Obama uh, to do those things. And I'm wondering, from your from your vantage point in the movement, are, uh, are activist groups uh, poised and ready to uh, 
to agitate and, and push the Biden administration further than they may otherwise go. Yeah, you know, I I can only really speak for the work I do with Sunrise. Um, I, you know, I'm 25 years old, so I was a teenager in high school during the Obama administration, um, I guess even in middle school. And, you know, at that time was involved in some environmental groups and nonprofits, but didn't quite get politically activated um, until I was a bit older. And um, since then, I've been deepening that engagement in several different environmental organizations and political organizations, with Sunrise being the main focus over the past couple of years. Um, and so I can certainly say that I think what we're doing with, with Sunrise, both in New Haven and across the country, is educating young people, not just young people, but we have a, a clear focus on empowering youth leadership in this climate justice movement. And I can say with confidence that we are bringing in lots of amazing organizers and leaders who are having a tremendous impact on their campuses, on their towns, on their cities, and in the nation as a whole, where suddenly we see that you know, the director of Sunrise Movement is being tapped for the Biden transition um, as a kind of advisor in, in the climate role as Biden was starting to staff up that our voice on a national political conversation is being listened to um, because of the base building that we're doing across the country. And so, um, you know, I, I don't pay a lot of attention to the daily news about what other organizations are doing, how big their bases are, um, how active they are. And, you know, it's easy to look back in history and say, um, well, Obama didn't get anything done around the environment. That's because there wasn't a vibrant environmental movement. Um, but I think those are hard calls to just hard generalizations to make. Um, so the only thing I can really say with confidence is that um, because there's amazing, young, impassioned organizers across the country and, and here in New Haven that are standing up for their communities that are organizing with love at the heart of what they're doing, trying to build a more just and livable planet, um, that we're building power and that power is being listened to by folks in the Biden administration. And certainly, I don't think we'd have the sort of announcements coming out, the sort of offices and appointments being created by his executive orders had Sunrise and our alleys um, across the, the movement ecology been pushing so hard over the past couple of years. And we're certainly not letting off the gas here. We're going to continue pushing. Ruth Ann, any, uh, any thoughts you'd like to interject here? Well, I, I think that uh, Biden has a lot of work to do right now, just putting back. Uh, there were a number of good environmental uh, actions made by Barack Obama, mostly in the area of policy. And the first thing Trump did, of course, with his time in the White House was to pull out ev evidently everything Obama signed and cancel it, cancel it, cancel it. So every program that Obama uh, authorized in terms of the environment was eliminated. And Biden has begun by trying to put those back. And I think that's a good way to start. But I certainly agree. That he, there's a lot of work to do, and especially a lot of work that uh, it, that uh, combines environmental survival with social justice. I'm glad there are organized groups that are, that are behind that and uh, agitating in a coherent way. 
because, as we all know, single voices get lost easily. That's it. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, you know, we're, we're almost out of time here, and I, I wanted to ask Tyler uh, just to give out the contact information for your group and others that uh, certainly would be of interest to our listeners who are active or want to become active in the climate movement. Definitely. Um, so nationally, you can find us at sunrisemovement.org. Um, if you're in the New Haven, Bridgeport area, um, I recommend you check out sunrisenhv.org. That's the, the landing page for our, our work here in, in New Haven. And, you know, we call ourselves the New Haven Hub, but we have folks from across central Connect, Connecticut, even some folks in Bridgeport who organize with us. Um, so that's sunrisenhv.org. Um, and there's also kind of several other hubs across Connecticut. So depending on where you live, you may want to check those out. Um, and you can find all the different hub locations on sunrisemovement.org. Um, there's a map there. You can enter your zip code uh, if you'd like to get involved. But again, we're, we're one of many organizations across the, the climate justice landscape. Um, so uh, I'd encourage folks to... Find whatever issues and whatever whatever communities they, they feel most supported in during any sort of political organizing work um, and feel where they they are at home in that work and where they're best supported, whether that's with a group like us or another group. But we definitely need everyone's effort on board at, at this time. Well, Tyler Wakefield, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your, your voice and your message. And you've been listening to the Resistance Roundtable, which comes to you the first, the second Saturday of each month from 10 to 11 a.m. For uh, Scott Harris, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, and myself, Richard Hill, thank you for listening. Stay tuned to WPKN. Barricada is next.